0: Um, I was a very lazy college student. Anybody else a very lazy college student? Only by God's grace, right? And um, I decided to be a really good idea to minor in political science, which, which like is just like a total train wreck, anyway. And I put off all my minor classes until my senior year. Well, stupid me. All of my minor classes required a paper written every week. I had three classes I was taking at one time with a four-page paper due every Friday. And, And like, if you know anything about me, English is not my strong suit. I almost failed freshman English in college, and you know, obviously thinking is not my strong suit either, or else I wouldn't have taken that minor. But one of the things I learned was because the first, like, half of that semester I kept getting these notes back on my paper that said this, your paper doesn't prove its thesis. And I'm like, well, no dip, Sherlock, I'm just trying to write the same paper for three classes. <laughs> I mean, I was trying to figure out how to make one paper apply to three classes. And I kept getting this idea about thesis statement, thesis statement, thesis statement. And I'm about to offend some of you language arts type people in this room. I absolutely hated the idea of having a thesis statement. And so this week, when we come to Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 7, guess what this is? This is Paul's thesis statement for the entire letter, it's his thesis statement and and as i was thinking about this it's important to know what a thesis statement is like i would have that would have benefited me a lot in college now coming to think about it but this this statement a thesis statement organizes your thought everything needs to flow out of that thesis statement that you're making if you're doing it right okay not like i did it in college to just get by it and it, and it really, this thesis statement needs to be written in such a way that it so organizes your thought that everything that comes out of it actually naturally flows right out of this thesis statement. Some of you in college right now, you'll thank me for that later, right? Um, but Paul's premise here, and we find it in verses 16 and 17 of Romans chapter 1, his big idea thesis is that the good news of God's gospel is a transforming truth for all and it's summed up in this basic idea. God's righteousness for the unrighteous. God's righteousness for the unrighteous. Now last week we saw Paul's heart as we looked at verses eight through 15 and we saw his motivation for wanting to, for wanting to write this letter to the Roman church. And as he was unpacking this, I said that there was one final motivation and it really is kind of the transition point of the whole thing. Up until verse 15, we're kind of in introduction stuff, right? Paul introducing himself, Paul writing some some nice comments to the Romans, kind of laying out his desires and so forth. And now we are transitioning from the greeting to getting right into the meat of this letter. And in doing so, he's going to lay out if you will, as as a trained attorney would do, and Paul was a trained attorney, trained lawyer, he's going to lay out his big premise idea, and he's going to spend then the next 15 chapters, 15 and a half chapters, kind of building out this thought. So with that in mind, go with me to Romans chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 16 and 17 this morning. Paul says this, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So this morning, I want us to get two really big ideas from this, two really big ideas. I want you to first understand the truthfulness, or even more than just the truthfulness, the veracity, V-E-R, veracity, the the verifiableness, if you will, of the gospel, the reliability of the gospel. And and if Paul can demonstrate the truthfulness of the gospel, if he can demonstrate its veracity, then, then I want us to see, second, the necessity of the gospel, So, two big ideas this morning as we kind of unpack this passage. So, as we do this, I want us to go and and I want us to pray this morning. And I want you to do something I don't often ask you to do, but I hope you're in the habit of doing whether or not I ask you to do this. When I'm praying, you should be active in your prayer. And, 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 And really, it's not me. We talk about somebody leading us in prayer. Really, you should be praying for yourself. And this is a golden opportunity to ask God in his power to open up the truth of God's word to your heart. Otherwise, what we do here for the next moments is just a waste of time. If God doesn't speak to us this morning, we've wasted our time. We've heard some nice music. We we spent some time shaking one another's hand. We've done this. But if God doesn't speak to us this morning, what was the point of coming here, right? Hello? God doesn't speak. What's the point? And I got good news. He has spoken in his word. So, so if, we, if we will interact with the word of God, we will hear the voice of God this morning. So I can be confident of that, and you can be confident of that as well. You take a moment, you pray, and then I'll lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, it occurs to me that we truly from the most mature believer in this room to the, to the, to the person who has never even opened a Bible in this room. We truly don't understand righteousness like we need to. I know my own heart doesn't understand righteousness like I need to because I know that I'm tempted to think that somewhere... In the, in the corners of my heart, in the corners of my mind, that I can be righteous with the things that I do and the things that I think. And so, this morning, Father, we desperately need to understand what righteousness is. We desperately need to understand the truth of your word. We desperately need to be reminded of the power of God in at work in the gospel of God this morning so Holy Spirit we invite you to come to work in our hearts we understand that the only way change can be made in our hearts is by taking in the word of God and you spirit doing that work in our hearts Lord eliminate the distractions Everything from the silliness of noise in this room this morning to the distractions that are going on in our own heads right now, thinking about the week that was or the week that is to come or, or, or deadlines or, or physical concerns or relationship issues. Lord, eliminate those distractions now by your power, we pray, so that we can truly take in the Word of God. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's talk this morning about the accuracy or the veracity of the gospel, because because Paul is basing this whole letter to this group of believers that he's never met, he's basing this whole thing on the fact that the gospel truly is the most amazing idea that this world has ever encountered. And he's writing it from that background, Paul's ultimate desire, if you go back just one verse, was to get to Rome so that he could preach to them the gospel. That's, that, was his, that was his big overarching desire as he's writing this letter to them. I want to get to Rome because I have something that's so important that you desperately need to hear, and I can't wait to share it with you. And he wants to make sure of a couple things when he's preaching this gospel to them. He wants to make sure that the ones that he's writing to get it right, that they get it right, that they understood it well. And as I think about that, I think about even our own local church, and I think about churches in general, and I think about just the state of Christianity in our country today. And and as I was thinking about it this week in my office, I came to this conclusion. I don't know if you agree with this conclusion or not. I can't definitively say that this is 100% accurate, but this is a conclusion that I've come to. The reason that we get off the rails so far in Christianity, and we, turn, and we turn church into a social club, or we turn it into something that God didn't intend it to be, or we turn it into a performance hall, or whatever we turn church into, the reason that happens is, is because we get off the rails with the gospel. Amen. Not saying that for approval. I'm saying that for you to think about this morning. How important is it that we get the gospel Right? It's absolutely, vitally important that we get the gospel right as a church. But it's even more important that you as an individual, every one of you in this room, it's even more important that you understand the gospel, that you understand it well, and that you respond to its claims. It's of vital importance for every single one of us. And what, what happens is, is that we can distort the gospel, we can twist the gospel, sometimes we're even well-meaning in it, but we can take the gospel, we can make the gospel more about ourselves than we can make it about the one who gave it to us. And as soon as we turn the gospel into anything but the glory of God and God's purpose is being, being carried out, then we're in danger of distorting that gospel. And all it takes is just to get it off just one or two degrees and start heading in that direction. And before too long, you're really far off the rails, aren't you? So Paul's desire is, is that these believers in Rome would get the gospel right. My desire for, for the believers in Johnstown, that fellowship at this church, my desire for us is that we would get the gospel right, and that we would keep it right as long as God keeps us on this earth. But there's a second reason why he desires to go and preach the gospel to them. And the second reason is, is because he knows, he knows the life-changing impact that the gospel has had on him, and he wants to see others affected by that same gospel. Let me ask you a question this morning. Has the gospel changed your life? Think about it. Has the gospel of Jesus Christ changed your life? Not just where you're gonna end up one day, but does it change your life on Monday morning? Does it change what you live for? Does it change your desires? Does it change the way you think? If if the answer is truly yes, if if your encounter with the gospel and, and, and your living out the gospel has changed your life, wouldn't you want more people to experience that? Isn't that just a natural thing? If the gospel has truly made a difference, wouldn't you want others to experience the gospel as well and be changed by it? And what Paul here is doing is he has this incredible desire to get to Rome and to preach the gospel to them, and he can't get there yet, so he's going to write out the gospel for them. And as, he, and as he's writing out the gospel, he has this twofold thought in mind through this whole letter. One, get it right, and two, make sure you're being changed by it. And so the first testimony that Paul offers up to the, to the life-changing truth of the gospel is this. It's Paul's personal testimony. Notice what he says in verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel. That is Paul's testimony in, in one line. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. If it was a thing to, to put inscriptions on tombs and if we could go to where Paul was buried, I'm wondering if this might not have been on his tomb. Paul died and he wasn't ashamed of the gospel. Now you say that's a really short testimony, and it's a really, it's a really, really, really kind of incomplete one. And I would say to you, no, it's a very complete testimony. Because Paul was not ashamed of the gospel, and we have to understand who Paul was. Before Paul was Paul, he was who, Church? He was Saul. When, When Paul was Saul, he was a persecutor of the gospel, was he not? He spent his time chasing down people who believed the gospel. He literally made it his life's ambition. In fact, keep your finger here and go back to the book of Acts. I want you to see just a couple places in the book of Acts where where this is kind of spelled out for us. Go to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8 and verse 3. Well, actually, we'll get into it in verse 1. In chapter 7, you have the stoning of Stephen, okay? Stephen is one of the early church leaders, okay? And, and he's stoned to death. And it, look at chapter 8, verse 1, and Saul approved of his execution. That's, that's kind of nice in the English. Really, really. Saul, Saul was wholeheartedly with them in the execution, not just that he approved of it. Saul approved of the execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church. Ravaging, it's an interesting word. The word is elsewhere used in the Greek language to be like a wild animal that mangles something. Like, have you ever come across roadkill? You seen what you see what birds of prey do with it? I know, that's a great thought for Sunday morning, isn't it? That's what Paul was doing to the church. He wasn't bombing buildings. He wasn't writing graffiti on where they met. He was literally plucking off people that were a part of Christ's church, and he was mangling them, and he took great joy in it. He was throwing people in prison. Go, go one or two pages forward in your copy of God's Word. Look at chapter 9 and verse 1. Listen to this description of Saul. Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. Literally, this guy was just like, I hate Christians, and I'm going to do everything I can to destroy them. With that in mind, I want you to read what Paul writes about himself to his protege in the faith, Timothy. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 1. I want you to see Paul's own description of his life. This is is how Paul refers to himself to his son in the faith, Timothy, this man that he loves, that he's trying to help become a better pastor to the church there in Ephesus. Verse 12, he says this, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Now, Paul's not saying this to get all the credit. He's saying, Christ judged me faithful, but Timothy, you need to understand who I was. Look at verse 13. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, I was a persecutor, an insolent opponent, because I received mercy, or but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Understand this Paul spent his life blaspheming the gospel, he spent his life persecuting the gospel and he spent his life being an absolute pain in the rear end to anybody who was a proponent of the gospel and now he writes to the roman church back in chapter one i'm not ashamed of the gospel do you see the radical change that's happened in this man's life that's what the gospel does people Paul was completely changed by the gospel, so much so that he went from persecutor to be the persecuted. So much so that he went from being the blasphemer to be the truth teller. So much so that he went from being the opponent to being the devoted follower, that he was willing to go anywhere that his Lord, the Lord of the gospel, directed him to go. I ask you this morning how committed are you and I to the gospel. Let's go to one other passage that helps us to understand how committed Paul was to the gospel. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I know I'm making you turn pages this morning. It's to help you stay awake, okay? 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul now is writing to the church at Corinth, and he's defending his ministry because there's people trying to discredit Paul. And, in, and here's the thing, it's nothing new today, and, and people are still trying it today. They're trying to discredit the ministry of Paul because if you can discredit Paul, guess what? You can discredit a lot of our New Testament, can't you? And so Paul is still under attack today. He was under attack while he was still alive, and he's trying to defend himself. And, and look at verse 23 of chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians. He says, are they servants of Christ? He's talking about these false apostles who are saying that they're more servants of Christ than Paul was. He's like, I am a better one. And he says, I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. And then as if that isn't enough, he's gonna spell out what his commitment to the gospel looked like. Just, Just take this in. Verse 24, five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Jewish law prescribed that you could beat somebody for, for some, some great offense. You could beat them 40 times, and they would do it 39 because the Jews, after all, were gracious, and they might get it wrong and actually hit you one extra time, right? So five times, he says, I, I, I was beaten. Look at verse 25. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. Did did you get the theme there? Paul's commitment to the gospel meant something to him. It cost him. Let's be honest. Sitting in this room, this nice, beautiful, pretty room, singing music this morning, all this stuff, we get all the feels, don't we? We get all the feels. But understand this. If you truly are a follower of Jesus Christ, it's going to cost you something. May not to the extent that it cost Paul But let's understand something. If you truly believe the gospel is true, then you will follow its claims to the point that it absolutely costs you something. And let's understand. Paul, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. So the first proof of the gospel in Paul's mind is, is his own life. It has radically transformed me. I am not the man that I was, and I am not headed nearly in the same direction that I was. The second proof of the gospel is seen in God's power. Look at the verse with me. I'm not ashamed of the, of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation. It's the power of God for salvation. I remember as a young child hearing this verse preached on and it was the first time that, that I'd ever heard somebody preach, bring up the idea of the Greek, okay? So, so when somebody brings up the Greek, it's not to be impressive, you know? Some guys do, though, do it for that, honestly. But, but our New Testament was written in what language, church? Greek. And, and, and we have to understand what words meant in the Greek so that we can understand what they mean for us today. And, and let me give you a little clue here. Sometimes our English translations don't always do a good job of taking the original meaning and and helping us to understand what they meant in the original words. Sometimes there's not good equivalence between the words. But I remember hearing this preached, and the guy talked about the Greek language, and he said, the word in the Greek is dunamis, and it's where we get our word dynamite. And he said this, this is dynamite power. The problem with that though, it is the word dunamis, but did the Greeks have dynamite? Did they? Is he talking about explosive power? There's a better English word that helps us to understand what he means by power here. How many of you heard the word dynamic? Heard that word dynamic or dynamo? The word dynamic means when you say that somebody's dynamic, they're not this kind of person. Hello, how are you today? A person who's dynamic has a powerful personality. They have a magnetic personality. They have an attractive personality. They're the kind of person that you want to be around. They're the kind of person that you want to talk to. And that's, I think, a better understanding of what we mean here by the power of God for salvation. It is a dynamic, ongoing power that is mightily working and it continues to work. And what Paul's saying here is, that the gospel is the tool, if you will, the power tool that God uses to transform people's lives. Now, God is God. He could use whatever he wanted to change people's lives, could he not? He's God, right? If he wanted to use some kind of magic food or magic berry, could he have done that? If he wanted to use magic pixie dust that he showered, could he change people's lives with that? God's chosen to do it through the gospel. And if God is changing lives through the gospel, I submit to you that we are in grave error if we think anybody else or anything else can radically transform our lives. And what Paul's saying here is, and he said it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 where he said this, the word of the cross or the preaching of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the dynamo, the dynamic power of God. Let me be clear. The simple presentation that Jesus died for our sins that he was buried, and that he rose again on the behalf of sinners is the sovereign supernatural means whereby God wants to display his omnipotent power to change people's lives. And if you and I aren't convinced of that, then we will tell people something else to try to bring change in their lives. Like, you just need to go on this diet, you just need to do this, you just need to eat clean, you just need to do a cleanse, you just need to do, it'll be life changing. Yeah, it might make you feel better, but the gospel will truly change your life. Because here's the reality of the gospel. You wanna know how powerful the gospel is? It takes dead men and it makes them alive. It takes dead men and it makes them alive. The Bible is clear that all of us are dead in our trespasses and sins. Can dead men do anything? Church, can dead men do anything? Can dead men bring themselves back to life? Can dead men even choose to come back to life? No, only the gospel and God's power working through the gospel is what makes dead men alive, praise the Lord. And let's understand something. Every time, every time that God, in his mercy and grace, brings about new birth in in a heart that is stony and makes it a heart of flesh, that right there is proof of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The idea of salvation means to rescue or deliver. And, and when I think about that, we're, we're rescued from so many things. We're rescued from sin and it's cursed. We're rescued from ourselves. We're rescued from Satan and we're delivered from God's wrath and the penalty and punishment that every one of us has earned with our, with our lives. And so it's the tool, the gospel is the tool that God uses to display his power and to rescue us. But notice thirdly, the truth or the veracity of the gospel is also seen in that it's provided for all who believe. Earlier this year there was a big deal about going to see Taylor Swift. I know some of you are ready to throw stuff at me. And like, there were like these long queues that you had to get in online on the internet to get tickets, right? Some of you are like, what is he talking about right now? Some of you are like, please tell me more, tell me more. And, and some buddies figured out how to scam people by putting Taylor Swift tickets on Facebook and selling them in the marketplace. Please tell me none of you fell for that. You see, wherever T. Swift went with all her little Swifties, there was only a limited amount of people who could get in, right? There's only a limited amount of people who could get in, praise God. <laughs> right? Only a limited amount of people who could get in. And the people that could get in were like, oh, I got it, I got to go seared! oh, it was so great. My life has been changed. But as powerful of a person as she is, she can't be available for anybody everybody, can she? Can she? Notice, notice the truth of the gospel displayed in this. It's for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You know what? There is no other. Thing that has ever been brought onto this earth that can say that, that it will absolutely guaranteed change you to anyone who would believe it. Wow. Okay. But understood, understand here, you have to believe it and understand what it means to believe. Believing is not just a mental agreement. Yeah, I believe Jesus died. I believe he was buried. I believe he rose again. It's a historical fact. Yeah, I can go for that. This word believe is an interesting word. This is where, this is where sometimes the Greek to the English doesn't do it justice. This, this idea of believing means active believing. It doesn't mean, oh yeah, I did that in the past. I believed that. And now I'm gonna go on. No, it means I believe that, I believe it today, and I'm gonna believe it for the rest of my life. It's an active word. I'm not gonna go into all the, the tenses and all that stuff, but just understand this it is an active, ongoing verb. It, it's it's a completely unreserved, it's a it's a confidently unshakable trust in the completed work of Jesus Christ. That is what it means to believe. It's so much so that the person who truly believes that rejects works, rejects religious ritual, rejects their upbringing, rejects baptism, rejects church membership, or giving money, or anything else, and they put their faith and confidence in Christ and Christ alone. Now, some of those things I said are good things, but if you're here today and you're trusting in your baptism to get you into heaven, all that did was get you wet. If you're trusting in the money you put in the offering plate, guess what? There are people who have given a lot more who will never make it into heaven. If you're trusting in the family you were born into, your family's just as screwed up as everybody else's. There's only one thing and that is an ongoing belief, a life changing belief that alters your course of life. But notice who it's for. My Bible says everyone. Is that what yours says? It's important. I like that because you know what it tells me that there's not one person who's beyond the scope of God's love. There's not one person who's beyond the scope of God's love. Paul put it this way. It was, it was to the Jew and then to the Greek. He was speaking in terms of ethnic heritage. And, and by Greek, he meant everybody who was not a Jew. And he said, it first came to the Jews. Like, when did it first come to the Jews? Well, it came all the way back. Think back a couple, like a long months, several months ago when we were preaching in Genesis Who who is the first one in scripture that's recorded they believed God and it was counted to them for righteousness? Abraham, and he was a what? It came to the Jews first. And praise God, God didn't keep it just for the Jews because that means you and I can tap into that too, right? So Paul's testimony, the testimony of power, the testimony of the fact that it's available for all, If this is really true, if this is really true, then then it's really necessary then, isn't it? It's really necessary. So let's go to verse 17. For in it the righteousness, and if you write in your Bible, this is one of those times I will tell you to do something I would not tell you to do very often. Scratch out the word of and put in from or write it above of. This should be better translated, the righteousness from God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The gospel does this. It reveals God's righteousness. Pop quiz, Romans is all about? Oh, you did better that time. Romans is all about righteousness. We shouldn't be surprised that in his thesis statement, Paul brings up the idea of righteousness here. But let's understand what righteousness is. One of the things that bothers me the most is, is, and I do it, I'm guilty of this, is when I'm teaching or preaching, I assume that everybody understands the words that I'm using. I don't want you to assume or that you understand what righteousness is. Let's make sure we all understand what righteousness is. If Romans is all about it, and it's used over 35 times in this book, we better understand what righteousness is from the very beginning here. The idea has to do with being straight. It has to do with being straight. And the idea is, is that righteousness conforms to a standard. Righteousness conforms to a standard. Now, if we're talking about God's righteousness, then are we talking about God's standard? Church, are we talking about God's standard? Does your standard compare to God's standard? God's standard is perfection, is it not? God's standard is holiness. God's standard is far above our standard. Think about it this way. Every single one of us in this room has standards for how we like our houses to be clean. Do we not? Some of you are very much neat freaks. Everything in a place with a matching basket and a label, no dust, everything perfect, your windows are perfect in your house. You're the kind of person I wanna go in and just go to a corner of one of your windows and do this. Some of us have no standards right? And we tend to make evaluations based on standards, right? If you're a person that likes a clean house, you know it. You walk into somebody's house that's not as clean, and what's your first thought? It's the same thing with our righteousness, people. Every single one of us is tempted to think we are righteous. And we look around us, and and here's the reality of the world we live in. You can always find somebody in your mind that's not as righteous as you are. Can't you? You can always find somebody to look down on. And we're looking at it wrong. We're looking at it from our perspective. If we need to look at righteousness from God's perspective, and God's standard is way up here, His straightness is way up here, and you and I are like four levels down. Our righteousness doesn't even compare. In the Old Testament, our righteousness is called filthy rags. And I'm going to go into what that means. Some of you know it's disgusting. So the idea of righteousness is to conform to a standard, not a standard of our making, but God's standard, to be straight with his standard, to be, to be right in line with his standard. That's righteousness. I once had a man tell me this, to my face, straight faced, he was not kidding. I thanked him for doing something. It was, he was a part of our church many years ago, and I thanked him for doing something, and he said to me, Pastor Dan, you can always count on me because I always do the right thing in the right way at the right time. Like, I thought God in the flesh came a lot earlier. He struggled with self-righteousness. You could say that just a little bit. And here's the thing about that guy. I don't think unless God radically changed his heart, that I'll see him in heaven because he thought he was good enough. That man probably didn't see his need for the gospel because he didn't see himself as in need of righteousness. He was perfectly right. He always did the right thing in the right way at the right time. That's righteousness, isn't it? There's only one righteous man who's ever lived, and his name is Jesus Christ, and he was the God-man. One commentator in writing about this was talking about righteousness, and he says, what we don't need is any more of human righteousness. We need an alien righteousness. Now, don't think about like aliens from outer space, but think about this. Alien as not from here. Alien as in foreign to us. And he's right in that. We do need an alien righteousness. We certainly don't need any more human righteousness. And let's understand something here. The gospel reveals God's righteousness. It puts it on total display for us to see. And when it does that, it also reveals our lack of righteousness. Note that this righteousness is from faith for faith. You see it there? From faith for faith. Like, what is he saying here? What's he trying to say here? You know, there's several commentators who who kind of go back and forth on this. I, I really think, as I look about this, really what he's saying is it's just all about faith. It's all about faith. We receive this righteousness by faith, we live by faith, and we walk by faith. And Paul then illustrates this by quoting, of all people, Habakkuk. Like, Habakkuk is in that part of your Bible that's, like, got the really clean white pages, the part that you never touch, right? He quotes Habakkuk, and and I should point out here, this is, like, the first of 60 Old Testament quotes that Paul's going to make in this letter, and he quotes this little snippet from Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4, the just shall live by faith, the righteous shall live by faith. So the gospel reveals God's righteousness, but it also points to the necessity of why we need it. Because what it says is, we have to be just, or we have to be righteous. The idea of being just here, or righteous, is to be approved or accepted by God. So when you think about righteousness as a standard, if God's going to have a standard, is he going to hold us all to the standard? Yeah. Yeah. And how many of us can meet the standard? None of us can meet the standard, yet we are going to find out in the book of Romans is God declares us to be righteous. And unless we're declared to be righteous, unless we're declared righteous or made just or justified, we have no hope. understand this that in god declaring us righteous he accepts us and imputes his righteousness to us based on the work of christ on the cross this is accomplished by faith we receive that by faith notice what i said he accepts us we do not accept jesus let me say that again You may have this in your vernacular, you need to work hard to take it out of your vernacular. You do not accept Jesus, God accepts you. I know it's a thing that we've been told all our life, you pray and you ask Jesus into your heart. No, you pray in mercy and ask God to accept you based on the merit of Christ. And that's what the gospel does. It directs us to this thought that you and I cannot possibly justify ourselves. We can't do it. God has to do it. God has to intervene. God has to step in. Christ had to die because none of us can produce enough righteousness. Christ, the perfect son of God, came. He lived a perfect life, imagine that. And then he offered himself up as a sacrifice for you and I so that we can be made right, justified, made righteous, conformed to the standard of God. And what the gospel does is it points to the necessity of being made righteous. Hmm. We've got to get the gospel right, church. You, sitting here today, you have to get the gospel Right? There's a lot of things you can get wrong. You can vote for the wrong party if you want to, whatever that party is. Everybody has an opinion about it. You can get that wrong. You can root for the wrong team. You you can go to the wrong school. You can choose the wrong career, but you can't get the gospel wrong. You can't. Those other things will, will change the direction of your life a little bit here and there, but the gospel will absolutely alter your life in an, un, in an unbelievable way that, that you can't even fathom. And I want you to get it right. I want you to know it, and I want you to believe it, and I want you to live by it. And I, let's understand something the gospel isn't an invitation to a better life, that is not the gospel. And those that present it that way are presenting a lie from the pit of hell. The gospel is not just an invitation to to have all the good things in life. The gospel is not an invitation to to be a part of a system of rules. And too often I fear that we make the gospel all about, okay, you're saved, now you got to boom, 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 boom. The gospel is not an invitation to a system of rules. That if you follow them, you'll be happy and God will be happy with you. But if you don't follow them, then God's not happy with you and you've got to spend all your life making God happy. Here's the reality, folks. You can't make God happy. Jesus did. The gospel is also not a disingenuous prayer followed by a life of pursuing your own selfish desires. I say that to you this morning? If you're putting your faith and trust in a prayer that you prayed and you're not living in active faith right now, you believed a false gospel. You believed a false gospel. It is God's righteousness revealed which is really bad news but it's really good news the bad news is is that not one of us can match his righteous standard but the good news is is that christ did and that based on his work god will accept us into the beloved if we believe that by faith and we actively believe that going forward it's good news because you and I can't be righteous, but he will declare us to be righteous. It's good news because we're saved from sin, we're saved from ourself, we're saved, we're saved from the clutches of Satan, we're saved from the wrath of God. That ought to make you wanna scream hallelujah. And so this morning, let me read those verses one last time. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Have you by faith received this salvation? If not, today is the day. Today is the day. There's no better time than now. But if you're here this morning and you've received the gospel, let me, let me just offer this to you. The gospel is intended to absolutely change your life completely. And that ought to bring you great joy, in spite of all the circumstances of life. We read about it in Psalm 90 this morning, right? Right? That's kind of a depressing psalm, isn't it? Yeah, you get to live 80 years and then your life is full of trouble. Hey, sign me up. But here's the thing. The gospel guarantees the best end, does it not? The gospel guarantees the best end. And we ought to be rejoicing in it. We ought to be sharing it. We ought to absolutely be reveling in it. I mean, just like a pig in mud, we ought to be just like jumping into the gospel. Like, soak it in, baby. Bathe me in that gospel every day. But let me encourage you to keep your eyes fixed on Him. That's part of that active faith. You keep your eyes fixed on the, what Hebrews chapter 12 calls the founder and the completer of our faith. don't you don't manufacture the faith christ is the founder of your faith he's the source keep your eyes fixed on him father oh help us to get the gospel right help us to get it right not so that we can pass a quiz or or some some you know test that that somebody wants to throw at us but god so that we live by the gospel, so that we're transformed by the gospel, so that, so that we, we are motivated by the gospel. It's easy and we confess it's easy and it shouldn't be easy, but it's easy to, to forget the beauty of the gospel. It's easy to take the gospel for granted. But Lord, just even in these moments, remind us that every single one of us is unrighteous unless we are declared righteous by you. Every single one of us is, is deserving of your wrath. Every single one of us has no hope apart from what Christ has done for us. And I pray that that would radically motivate us. For those this morning in this room who have not put their faith and trust in Christ, Holy Spirit, I pray, work in those hearts. Do what you did in my heart so many years ago. You didn't leave me alone until I would consider the claims of the gospel and put my faith and trust in Christ. I pray that you would do that today. Thank you for the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. In Jesus' name. Amen.